KYW Original Podcasts. From the KYW Studios in Philadelphia, this is Cinema Obscura. The musical biopic is one of the most reliably wrote genres in film, often playing out as an encyclopedic listing of an artist's life events from a pivotal childhood event to an early career rise. Then comes the musician's downfall before ending with a triumphant return to fame. In the summer of 1989, rock and roll pioneer Jerry Lee Lewis had his turn on the big screen in a bright, boisterous movie headlined by an unbelievably massive performance by Dennis Quaid. I'm Andre Bennett, joined by KYW's Frank Trainer, and this week we're talking about Great Balls of Fire. Hello, Frank. Hey, how's it going? I uh, I have to apologize because I kind of forced you to watch this. I was ah. telling you, I said, you got to see this, Andre. Ah, was, you got to see it. It was a suggestion, and we are always open to suggestions. And we got something to talk about. <laughs> we got this a lot movie. to talk about. I'll tell you what. My wife, every time she sees this coming on TV, she says, "Please don't watch this again." <laughs> And I, I just tell her, I said, honey, I got to. It's so bad that it is classic. So I, I find myself, if I catch it, I'll watch it to the bitter end. And it does get kind of bitter. I have to agree with you in that regard. It is kind of bad. But if not for some of the subject matter, it to me would be an almost enjoyable train wreck. Yeah. Really like transfixing. It is that. But before I get too far into this, we've got a clip from the movie. Here's where Jerry Lee Lewis meets with the head of Sun Records, Sam Phillips, for the first time. Sam? Hey, Delvin Brown, remember me? And uh, Jerry Lee Lewis here. Mr. Phillips? You take a white right hand and a black left hand, and what do you got? Son, you got rock and roll. Jerry, I got big plans for them hands. Well, Mr. Phillips, these hands can heal the sick, raise the dead, make the little girls talk right out of their head. <laughs> Hallelujah. Jerry Lee Lewis, J.W. Brown, say hello to my brother, Judd Phillips. <clears throat> my brother here's got a real good feeling about that hot piece of wax you cats cut. I'm the leg man here. I move the merchandise. And it's uh, moving time. You're going to bust us flat in no time. Sam here don't understand that you have to spend money to make money. That makes sense. And Judd here don't understand that you cannot spend what you do not have. <laughs> That's got a point there. And that is from the genius who sold Elvis Presley for $35,000. It's funny, Frank. We talked about UHF last week, and this movie was released by the same studio, Orion Pictures, about a week later. I guess they really wanted to go all in on music that year, huh? I guess so, and I didn't know that until you had uh, mentioned it to me before we started recording. And I just got to say, growing up, I listened to Jerry Lee Lewis because he was one of the pioneers of rock and roll. And the more I got to know him, and I saw him a couple of times live, you know, he's from a very famous family down there in Faraday, Louisiana. And, uh, you know, his uh, his cousin is a well-known Preacher Jimmy Swaggart and another cousin I got to know very well down in Texas opened up Gillies and that opened up a whole new career for a whole lot of artists. So there was a lot of talent coming out of Faraday, Louisiana, and apparently they would gather at their grandma's house and they would all play on the same piano. And that must have just been crazy. I'd love to hear some tapes of those early recordings. of. Yeah, there's a scene where it's Jerry and his cousin Jimmy played by Alec Baldwin here. Yeah, it was and great. I love seeing when young Alec Baldwin is playing a character role because they tried to make him a leading man, but you just knew that he was really a character actor with leading man looks. And once he got past that point, 
I guess really Glenn Gary Glenn Ross was the turning point for his career when he made people realize, oh, okay, we can cast this guy in like supporting roles and character parts and he's still going to be great. Yeah, yeah, he does a great job. And we have to warn the listeners that just about every single performance is over the top. I mean, way over the top. Even the yeah. extras at the high school as Jerry's coming by and his music is playing. At him, yeah, they have Cadillac. musical numbers. Yeah, it's over the top by everybody except for Winona Ryder. Now, she probably did the best dramatic performance mm-hmm. of, of anyone in this film. And she really does a good job playing his 13-year-old cousin who becomes his wife, wife number three, I think. Yeah. She was 19 at the time when they made this, I believe. Well, she does a good job. She really, really does. So let's tell the listeners one good thing. If you like Jerry Lee Lewis and you like rock and roll, there's some great music in this. And it was all done by Jerry Lee. It's, yeah, it's not he Dennis recorded his own it. stuff. Yeah, yeah. so the this. music alone is worth that two hours of your life that you're never, ever going to get back again. But it's, it's enjoyable pain. At least it is for me. But not for you. Not for you, <laughs> yeah. now. Don't hold back now. Um, on paper, you've got a great cast. Right. You have, of course, Dennis Quaid. You've got Winona Ryder. Uh, you got John Doe from the punk band X as Myra's father. The late Trey Wilson plays Sam Phillips. He actually passed away before filming was completed. The movie is dedicated to him. As his brother Judd, the always delightful Stephen Tobolowsky. And again, the performances. Everything was played like you were playing it on a stage. It's at a high pitch. Everything is at a high pitch. But I did love Tobolowski as Judd, uh, but I'm generally a fan of his. You probably know him best as Ned Ryerson from Groundhog Day. Getting back to Great Balls of Fire, I mentioned the pivotal childhood event that usually starts these movies or Mm -hmm. something that happens in the character's youth. So this movie starts off with that. Jerry Lee and Jimmy, yes. Uh, They're sneaking off to a black nightclub to hear rhythm and blues. Really, it's Jerry Lee dragging Jimmy. Jimmy thinks it's the devil's music. Right. But Jerry Lee, he is entranced. He's in love. After Jimmy runs off and Jerry Lee is still there listening, we jump ahead to 1956 where we see Myra coming home and seeing this strange man at a piano. So... You thought Winona Ryder was down to earth compared to the rest of the cast. Yes, I I thought she did a fine performance. Yeah. Really good. I mean, it was a tough role because the real Myra went through a whole lot of tragedy in her life with Jerry Lee uh, while they were married. And after they divorced, they remained very, very close. And it was amazing to see how she went from little girl to young woman to serious adult. And you could just tell, even by looking at her eyes without her even saying anything, how much she was in love with Jerry Lee. And I think uh, Winona did a great job conveying all all those emotions and again my favorite performance in the entire film she's great and around this time she was really starting to come into her own showing how wonderful of an actress she already was and would become dennis quaid yeah dennis quaid so from the beginning he's on another level yeah, yeah. he he's like preening and mugging and prancing and just peacocking everything about him was like this cartoon and i'd read there was a critic who compared him to roger rabbit which also came out that year and i felt that vibe a bit 
Although I'd also kind of compare him to Judge Doom in that movie with the look, with the hair, with the expressions. He's like going this way and that. He's just so overactive and and hyper. And it's from, like you said, the very beginning of the film. And yeah. I, uh, I've always loved Dennis Quaid. I, uh, I guess I first saw him in The Right Stuff. And, uh, Great movie. And fell in love with his character. And mm-hmm. he kind of plays a version of that character, cocky, self-assured guy yeah. in this film. But, man, he is so over the top. And you got to give him props because to do that for the daily filming for months that they worked on this thing and be that over the top constantly, I don't know how he did it, but he did it. It was a superior act of commitment. Yes. It felt like he had seen Nicolas Cage in Vampire's Kiss (laughs) and decided – I'm going to outdo that guy. It's like I'm going to be crazier than Nick yeah, Cage. Him and like it was Good like, luck with that. It was like a combination of of Nick Cage and his brother Randy. There you go. If you're listening now and you're thinking, well, maybe I'll check that out. Just waste two hours of your life. Check it out. Again, two hours you're never going to get back, but great music, and you're never going to forget this film, right? Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, you're never going to forget it because it's so bad. You're never going to get that time back. I agree. (laughs) But another concern I had was that the movie tries to have it both ways. It portrays Jerry Lee as this arrogant, canny jerk of a con man almost, just in his demeanor. But then he's also coming across as this earnest buffoon, almost like a simpleton in a lot of scenes. So it's acknowledging that he wasn't a great guy, but it's also trying to make him somewhat likable. Let's talk about one great line and one high point of the film. He's there at the church that's being run by his cousin, Jimmy Swaggart. Oh, the ending? Yeah, kind of towards the ending. And Jimmy's preaching right to him about, you know, fire and damnation. Yeah, the altar call. Yeah, and his his wife Myra's in the congregation there, and she's trying to listen to Jimmy Swaggart, and he's trying to save her from Jerry. And all during the film, they have this uh, cousin rivalry that's uh, pretty intense. And at one point, Jerry Lee is taking all this criticism. He's sitting in the back there, and he gets up, goes to the back door, opens it up, and he said, well, if I'm going to hell, I'm going to play in the piano. And then, boom, you know, it's back into rock and roll. And I just thought, okay, that's how they sum it all up. No matter what, you know, he was born to play, and that's what he's going to do. It's a great line, but I thought that scene was almost ghoulish because right after he walks out of the church, Myra, who has – gone up to the pulpit during the altar call. She runs out after him and they kiss and it's like this almost gross parody of like the climax of a romantic movie, even to the point where they're playing the music from Gone with the Wind. Right. Yeah, They're playing yeah, the music from a, Gone with the Wind. Kind of, it's kind of that shot like uh, from Gone with the Wind. Yeah. There. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. But it, that's the thing. Even as over the course of the movie, he's romancing Myra – the movie is always taking his side. Like it's acknowledging on the surface, yeah, this is not a good thing he's doing, but it's not really engaging with this as like an actual honest criticism of him or his actions. Like he's literally marrying a 13-year-old. But after Sam Phillips tries to talk JW down from killing him, everyone is suddenly acting like, oh, that Jerry Lee Lewis, he's such a scamp. Right. And and that in reality is what killed his career for a long time. I it mean, did. when they found out about that over in London when he was there for a tour, boy, the, the papers just got on him and his record sales went down and his career went into a slump and 
early fans of rock and roll will appreciate the fact that there is a uh, cameo in this film of the real Steve Allen, who had yes. a very important role in a lot of early rock and roll careers, including Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis, to the point where they even named, they uh, named their, their son. first son yeah, after, after him. him. And yeah. it's uh, it's really it, cool to see him in this film. And he could really move. Oh, he could. He, <laughs> yeah. could, and he could play. He could sing. He could do everything. I read that the director, uh, Jim McBride, who had worked with Dennis Quaid before on The Big Easy, wanted to tell a darker, more nuanced story. But Orion wanted this to be a colorful, feel-good PG-13 musical, kind of like when they thought UHF could be a summer blockbuster. But at the same time, McBride has also said that they kind of threw out a lot of the source material because this movie is ostensibly based on Myra's biography of Jerry Lee. But she's come out and said that they really deviated from a lot of the truth. And then Jerry Lee also came out and said that he didn't care for it because he felt like it took her side too much. So nobody was really satisfied. Jerry Lee actually was on the set as a production advisor. But I also read that he at one point had threatened one of the producers with a gun. Oh, yeah. I, and, I could see that. A gun yeah. he probably had in his boot. Oh, yeah, probably. Yeah, on set. There have been at least a few stories of Jerry Lee Lewis pointing a gun at somebody oh, yeah. or trying to storm Graceland. Right, yeah. yeah. Something that usually ends with him getting arrested. And why would anyone want to work with this guy? Well, I guess that he was just that talented. Yeah, and a lot of those guys from the early Sundays who Sam Phillips got together, they all came from the same background. They were all poor kids from poor working families and just did whatever they could to make a buck. And uh, they all had guns, you know, with that story you were just telling about uh, Jerry Lee going over to Graceland and, you know, knocking on the gates. and Let me <laughs> yes. in, let me in. And he has a gun in the car. And, and he's drunk, I'm and sure. He, and yeah. he, of course. And uh, But but him and Elvis used to tour together, and they were great pals. And, mm -hmm. you know, if the security people had not turned him away, he probably would have went in and given – I think he was going to give the gun to Elvis because it was a collector's model of some sort. Yeah. So that never happened. There's uh, that one scene where Elvis is about to ship off to the army and he goes to the studio and sees Jerry Lee and basically says, well, it's yours now. Yeah. But you like, know what? They all that toured. That didn't happen. But, but they all toured together. They all did wild stuff out on the road. And it's a testament to their upbringing and their early start at Sun Records where all these guys remain friends for the rest of their lives. Johnny Cash yeah. thrown in the mix there. and I will say – if you're going to do this movie today, it would have to be very different because obviously you'd have to be more honest about who Jerry Lee Lewis really was. You can't sanitize or sugarcoat it, which this movie felt like it was trying to do whether the director had intended to or not. Also, you got to include the Million Dollar Quartet. Yeah, you, you really do. It's kind of touched on here, but it could have been played up a lot more. And the real backstory of Jerry Lee and his cousins from Faraday, Louisiana, Jimmy Swaggart and Mickey Gilly, who went on to great success down in Houston with Gilly's Nightclub and launched all kinds of country careers. It's a poignant story of family because all three of those men have had serious problems, both with their career and their health. And every time one of them gets in trouble, the others come to the aid. So family, you know, family is family. And, and these guys who were competitive in their careers and all that stuff, you know, when, when times get hard, they come together as family. And that's a beautiful story. 
We do have another clip. You mentioned before when Jerry Lee was in England and the story broke. So this is when he's leaving England, when they've more or less kicked him out of the country. What do you think of your king now? Yeah, you're right. Elvis Presley is the true king. What was that? He said Mr. Presley is the true king of rock and roll. You know, y'all would have lost the war without us. You just think about that. Do you think your expulsion from England is a repudiation of rock and roll? They canceled Jerry Lee's tour because of our marriage, not because of his music. We've been beat up pretty bad because of this publicity. But Meyer and I love each other, and we mean to keep it that way. Jerry, looking ahead, don't you think your popularity will be diminished at home? Back home, they take a different view of this sort of a thing. I expect a great reception when I get back there. My fans will understand. Mr. Lewis, do you have any final words for England? Yeah. England can kiss my... Oh, hold on there, Jerry Lee. Well, uh, <laughs> so uh, well as as he sets up, you know, oh, everything's going to be better back home. Well, it wasn't. It's worth mentioning the lead reporter in that scene is played by comedy icon Peter Cook, best known for his legendary partnership with Dudley Moore. And it's interesting. Usually reporters are played to be obnoxious and all that. The English reporters portrayed in this film just seemed to be doing their job and they, yeah. they weren't out to hurt him. They were just out to get the story and he wasn't too helpful. Well, Cook's character did seem to take a dim view of him from the beginning. Mm. His first scene, he's talking about how he hates being there for like musician arrivals and his uh, colleague says, well, you weren't arguing when we were here for Liberace. And he's like, would you compare a talent like Liberace to some country bumpkin? And he really knows how to play smug very yes. well. Yeah, he did a good job. He did a good job. Um, so, uh, yeah, I liked him here. Great Balls of Fire is available on DVD, but it's not available digitally or streaming. But like my wife says, it's on TV. It is. And her poor husband gets uh, lured in every time it's on. And again, you're never going to get the time back. But if you have two hours to waste, it's a it's a good film for one particular reason. It's great music. Can't argue that. Lousy or over-the-top acting, but great music. The music is great. It's just so Bad. cartoonish. Bad. and Bad. It's bad, ahead, but it, it's, bad. it's bad, but it's it's garish. And I said ghoulish before about the ending, but I feel like that describes a lot of the movie as the quote unquote romantic plot ramps up. It's a hagiography that really, really left a bad taste in my mouth. But I know people who have seen it and liked it. You've seen it and liked it. I've so but if I, you want to check it out. Again, I yeah. liked it for a specific reason. Yes. I liked it because it was so bad. I thought it was classic. You can tell watching it that it maybe could have been more. Oh, yeah. It, and it, those it, movies frustrate yeah. me the yeah. most. Yeah, I, I just get to a point where I just say, okay, well, this is what they're going to do. So, uh, yeah. and I was just, I was hanging in for the music. And, well, again, so bad, it's great. And don't forget, Cinema Obscura is on Twitter at C Obscura Pod. Find us there. Get more information about each episode. Join the conversation or just tell me if you think I'm getting too bent out of shape over this. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. You're good. Frank, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Cinema Obscura. And I'm Andre Bennett with Frank Trainer. Cinema Obscura is recorded and produced at the KYW Studios in Philadelphia. For more shows, check out the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening. So if I'm going to hell, I'm going there playing the piano.